Now, Joshua, the book of Joshua is narrative, and uh, oftentimes in narrative, it's our inclination, at least I do this, to try and figure out who are the main characters. Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who are we rooting for? Who are we booing? And uh, we do that all the time in any book or any movie we watch, but certainly when it comes to uh, the narrative passages of scriptures, we oftentimes do the same thing. And so as we've read Joshua, we've seen villains and we've seen heroes. We've seen heroes in the most unlikely of places like uh, Rahab. We've seen uh, villains as well, uh, like Achan, who was an Israelite. But as I was thinking about it, <clears throat> you know, it's not so much that there are ever any other or that there are many other heroes in the Bible. And there are, but, but hear me out with this. The Bible is about one person. It is about God. There is only one hero in this story, and it is God. But all who do the will of God, who are accomplishing the purpose of God, who are wanting to follow God's way, guess what? They're also the hero. And anyone who goes against God, anyone who defies his will, everyone who goes against his purpose, they would be the villain. Now, sometimes uh, one and the same can be both. David, when he is slaying Goliath, he is the hero because God is the hero. God is using him to slay the beast that is Goliath. And yet, when David is with Bathsheba and he is, um, he is putting Uriah, her husband, to death, He's no longer the good guy. He's the bad guy. He is the villain because he is going against God and his will and his desire. There is only ever one hero. And I, I thought that was just something helpful to remember um, because the book of Joshua, you want to say very clearly and see very clearly that he is a heroic figure. He even makes mistakes. We've already seen that. But he's not defined by those. He has a repentant heart. And he comes before his Lord humbling. So yes, he's a hero. Uh, and you can find many heroes. And, and I like when the Bible shows us an unlikely good guy, an unlikely people or person to cheer for. And as we go through this, we're gonna, I'm really going to just highlight one villain, and then I'm going to highlight um, the Gibeonites, who are an unlikely uh, protagonist, an unlikely group to cheer for. So, Let's begin, and we're going to be going through just the first 15 verses of Joshua 10, and I'll, I'll go through it a little bit at a time here. I won't read the whole thing at once, but beginning in Joshua chapter 10. As soon as Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Param, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. 
Now, we have a lot of folks who weren't here last week, so we'll do a little bit of preparatory uh, introduction here because Joshua 10 is a continuation of Joshua 9. And if you missed uh, last week's episode, so to speak, um, we remember that the Gibeonites, who were part of the group of people that, that God said you need to destroy them, um, they are pagans, they hate God, they do wicked things to their people, they follow uh, wicked practices of their gods, they must be wiped out. But they played a little ruse on the Israelites and made a covenant of peace with them. And when uh, the Israelites discovered that they had been deceived, they couldn't, they couldn't go back on their words. So now the Gibeonites, who they were supposed to be objects of destruction, were now objects of the Israelites' protection. How did this happen? When we said last week, the the key verse there is that Israel did not ask counsel from Yahweh. It's Joshua 9, 14. And that's sort of the the hinge upon which that story drives. They did not ask the Lord. They, They knew something was amiss. They knew something didn't quite smell right when these Gibeonites come up and, oh, we're from a far off country. And yet, rather than follow on their suspicions, they, um, they made their own decision and they, they come into this peace treaty uh, under deceit. But the Gibeonites, to their credit, and we'll talk about this more in a second, uh, they were desperate. They had no other plan. They were doomed for destruction. This was a Hail Mary pass. This was the, the only thing they could think to do is, is try to trick the Israelites. And then, frankly, when that didn't work, try to, to sell themselves to the Israelites. We will be your slaves just as long as it's better than being destroyed. Being your slaves would be better than being destroyed. And so uh, this becomes an issue in Joshua chapter 10 because you have the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, hearing of this deception, and now the Gibeonites' uh, traitorous turn towards their enemy, the Israelites. Now, you might look at king of Jerusalem and think, wait, 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 wait a second. Isn't Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Um, why are they fighting against the Israelites? Well, we have to understand that this is before Jerusalem became the capital of Israel. This is as the people, the Israelites, were just coming into the land. And at this time, Jerusalem was uh, led by Adonai Zedek, and they were also called the Jebusites because the city wasn't called Jerusalem, it was called Jebus. So the Jebusites were at Jebus, and Adonai Zedek was their king. Um, David would make the capital of Jerusalem about 300, 400 years later. Now, um, the Jebusites, again, were one of the peoples that God had commanded the Israelites wipe out. They followed false gods. They sacrificed their children on altars. They did all kinds of wicked practices. And God said, enough is enough. Um, When you come into the land, you are going to wipe them off the face of the planet. My patience has run out. They've actually had many, many years to repent, and they did not. And so Jerusalem, or at least what is then called Jebus, was one of these cities devoted to destruction. Now, Adonai Zedek, his name means Lord of Righteousness. (laughs) So like many other kings and rulers and presidents and dictators, proclaiming yourself Lord of something is one of the perks. You can (laughs) call yourself Lord of whatever you want. You're in charge. Who is going to go against you? But of course, we know that all of these nations were far, far from being Righteous, this was really the Lord of the self-righteous. 
if anything. Lord of, make yourself right no matter what. And he is going to make an assessment of this situation that he finds himself in that shows his self-righteousness because it lacks any humility. It lacks any acknowledgement of God's greatness and power. He's recounting what happened at Ai, how the Israelites had destroyed the city. He, he heard of how Jericho fell just by the Israelites marching around the city and blowing their trumpets. If you had seen those things, you should have said, I don't know if we can go against this force because they aren't even winning by manpower. They're winning because God is on their side. But it would take a tremendous amount of humility to acknowledge that. And if you're self-righteous, guess what? You're not going to acknowledge that someone else is greater or has more power than you. Now, he sees that these Gibeonites and their neighbors are about five miles up the road. The Gibeonites have just made an alliance with Israel. And the Gibeonites, they were not just a, a bunch of, uh, you know, scraggly, you know, backwater hicks or something. They were actually a greater city than Ai. They were a, like a royal city, which means they had uh, lots of money and influence and power. And not only that, they were a city where all of its men were warriors. In other words, if anyone could stand against the Israelites, if anyone could have even like banded everyone together, let's fight against the Israelites, it would have been Gibeon. But Gibeon, in their humility, what did they say? They looked at Jericho, they looked at Ai, and they said, no, we can't win this. Now, this causes Adonai Zedek to fear greatly, the text says. The fear and foolishness of this self-righteous king is going to lead him into destruction. This was not a morale booster to see all this happening. And so as any self-righteous person knows, when you see someone making a better decision than you, you talk to your other self-righteous buddies and you punish the one that's making a wise choice. That's what you do. You see it happen in the corporate world. You see it happen on playgrounds. It's just you see someone else succeeding, making a good call, and you don't like it because you don't have the humility to make the same judgment, so you can get your buddies together, and let's go and beat that guy up. Let's make sure he doesn't get a promotion. Let's make sure that, you know, it can't be possible that we are the ones wrong here. And that's what Adonai Zedek does. He sends messengers to these four other kings, and he asks for their help to assault Gibeon. You might think, you know... Take it out on the Israelites, you know, they're over at Gilgal, but no, they're going to take it out on the Gibeonites. They're, they're jealous, they're angry, they're afraid. It doesn't matter. They're self-righteous. Nothing makes you feel better about doubling down on your foolishness than, than getting other people to attack that person that you are jealous of. Uh, and so one of the hallmarks, I'll say here, of the pagan nations and kings, one of the hallmarks of the villains of any Bible story and one of the hallmarks of any here who might have a little bit of self-righteousness in us, it's that inability to consider that perhaps humbly surrendering before God as much superior force is a reasonable option, especially if the alternative is complete and utter destruction. I mean, that should be a no-brainer. Utter complete destruction or submitting myself to a force that that's unstoppable. 
But this is what sin does. That's what self-righteousness does. Um, We choose self-destruction and destructive behaviors other than, uh, rather than humble ourselves to the overwhelming power of God. I mean, so when I see, I'll say this, when I see villains in the Bible, and when you see a villain in the Bible, and Adonai Zedek and these kings are villains, the first thought I think it's helpful to have, and, and Pastor Chris had a great uh, message or, or thought tying that in at the end of his sermon this morning, is to think, Am I acting like the villain? Do I think like the villain? Uh, it's easier to paint yourself as the hero I know. Oh, yeah, I'm just like David. I'm so faithful and, you know, courageous. But I think we want to read this and say, what did he do wrong? Why is he mistaken? What put him in the situation that, that he's in? Maybe first thing you do is not call yourself Lord of Righteousness. Maybe that's step one. But... Uh, we see in him, or we, sh- we often see in the villains of Scripture, a little bit of ourselves. So let us learn from that. And uh, I think this is a, a sort of an easy one. Adonai Zedek, he had witnessed what should have caused him to rethink his thought process. That's what the Gibeonites did. But as was with uh, the Egyptians, whom Yahweh hardened their hearts because their hearts were hard. He hardened his both and they hardened their own hearts. Yahweh hardened their hearts. So these kings of the Amorites, they hardened their hearts too. And part of it was because God's plan was to, to wipe them out. It, it was both a judgment from God and they were also asking for it by defying God. It's a both and. It's like they invited this destruction upon themselves, but God also intended to bring destruction upon them. So we have the fear and the foolishness of the self-righteous kings. Next, we have Joshua's plea um, or Joshua's rescue, or you can call it the, the unsiege because they're going to try to siege Gibeon, these kings, but they're not going to accomplish it. The unsiege of Gibeon. Verse 6, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua. So they're the Gibeonites they just made the peace treaty with, with Israel, and now they've got five kings on their doorstep bent on their destruction. So they sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, 25 miles to the east. And you can see that on the map on the back of your um, handout if you want, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haron, the uh, Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Here we have this miraculous protection of the Gibeonites. It's, it's an incredible statement, actually, when it says there has been no day like it before or since when Yahweh heeded the voice of man. Something here was extraordinary and spectacular, even by Old Testament, you know, miraculous, extraordinary events, that something unique was have happening here. And so we want to pay attention to this. We want to understand. It's not just a military strategy thing that's going on because how many military strategies incorporate gigantic hailstones falling from the sky? That's nobody's military strategy. Again, Gibeon was about five miles from Jerusalem. The Israelites in Gilgal are about 25 miles away to the east near the Jordan River. And they had an uphill March. They said they marched all through the night. Uh, we're going to call it 15 minute miles. If, uh, if uh, you got a ruck on your back, 15 minute miles is pretty, pretty fast uphill. So that's like a six hour march. So, hey, if that's uh, if, if, if they could do that in about six hours, that's pretty good. Um, and so you can see how that might take all night. I know we think of our cars and everything like that, but they had to, they had to hoof it up there. Now, a cynical part of me says, Joshua, you know, you could just show up late. The Gibeonites deceived you. They got this peace treaty by deceiving you. Remember, God actually wanted them destroyed. And they, they, were, they deserved to be destroyed. If you just wait a little bit, maybe their own former allies will destroy them for you. You don't have to worry about this covenant, and so on. If you remember from last week, this covenant uh, lasts for hundreds of years into the time of Saul and David. So this is like 400 years before Saul and David. So it lasts that long. It's Saul who's the first or at least the only one noted to break this this covenant. So it lasts a very long time. But uh, in any case, they, they this is the cynical part of me that says, you know, you know, why bother dealing with this treaty and they, they don't deserve it? Um, that's my sinful, self-righteous self saying, you know, Joshua, you, you could just, just let them do it. But he can't. They made a peace covenant and that meant that they needed to help them and protect them as their own people, as their own land. They could not return the Gibeonite deception with their own deception. All right, we'll be there in just a second. Just Take a long time to tie your shoes and get all your things together. No, there is zeal, you could say, in uh, in the text here, that they would go uh, immediately to the rescue of the Gibeonites. He takes the army with them. He takes their special forces, you know, the mighty men of valor. Um, We know that he must have consulted the Lord this time. Remember Joshua 9, 14? He did not take counsel with the Lord. We know that he must have here because Yahweh promises him. Don't fear. I am giving them into your hand. He has promised success, meaning that he is right. He is doing the right thing in going to protect these Gibeonites. March all night, cover that ground, but 
Yahweh is preparing the way because as soon as they set upon these kings sieging at Gibeon, they catch them unawares. And what happens is an absolute rout of the Amorites. You can look at the map on your handout for the geography of the battle. You can see Gibeon and then they kind of flee to the west and they get chased uh, south and through those passes. And all along the way, um, you can just imagine the hailstone falling upon them as they are retreating. It's clear that God had orchestrated these events to bring about both the destruction of those kings and the protection of those Gibeonites. And there's three ways we can see that Yahweh is the one behind this. Yahweh is the covenant personal name of God. And so in your text, if you're wondering why I'm saying Yahweh, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, that is this name Yahweh. Um, it's just sort of a convention that got passed from, from Jewish people to, to the, the English text to not use God's personal name. Um, they felt that it was uh, um, like taking the Lord's name in vain to say his name. So unfortunately, the Jewish people stopped sort of saying his name. They said Lord instead, and that tradition got carried on to English. Um, personally, I think Lord is a title. Yahweh is a name. So we say Yahweh here most of the time if you hear that, um, but that is why it's capitalized L-O-R-D. Okay. So um, there are three indications here, three ways that Yahweh shows this is my battle. This is what I'm doing. I am the hero. I am the main character. I am the one that you are cheering for. I am the one that the story is about. And, And the first one is this panic, the supernatural panic that he throws the people of Gilgal into. It says, uh, Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. Uh, We do see this at other times in the Bible. In fact, it happened to the Egyptians when they were pursuing, remember the Israelites? God threw the charioteers into a a panic. Um, So this is supernatural panic attack. Um, Panic is just never the right answer for any situation. I tell it to my kids all the time. Panic is not the answer. Panic is never the answer. Panic doesn't help anyone. Panic doesn't accomplish anything. Um, But especially in war, okay, panic can get people killed. Panic can can, uh, cause an entire army to uh, fail in their mission. Um, The best soldiers, by definition are the most disciplined and therefore don't fall into panic. They can handle the chaos of, um, uh, of that thought that things are happening outside of my control. And because things outside of me are happening outside of control, my inward response is to, is to not have control of myself. Now, I, I don't say this to diminish people who have panic attacks, okay? And I know that that is um, something that afflicts many Christians, actually, uh, maybe increasingly so. So this isn't to say that if uh, you have a panic attack, you're, you're a terrible person or anything like that, or that anytime you have a panic attack, it's God kind of, you know, sending that to you. So don't, don't take that takeaway uh, from this. This is only to say that what these uh, armies are experiencing is, is more than just... Um, Oh no, we're, we're being overwhelmed. This is too many enemy soldiers. This is a supernatural uh, panic that leads them to be easy pickings from the Israelites. 
And so you can say, well, for God to be able to to supernaturally change even the, the, the attitudes and the thinking of these soldiers, that's God's miraculous sovereign power. Um, I, I, can't necessarily, I can't necessarily do that, at least not to an army. Maybe I could threaten you know, one of you and uh, make you panic. I don't even know if anyone would ever feel threatened by me. But um, maybe you could say something to a kid to cause him to panic. But this is something beyond what any person can do. We are intended to see this as a supernatural, um, sovereign ability of God to make an entire, not just one army, but five armies set into a panic. That's the first way that we know that this is God doing this. God is behind this. The second one, of course, is the more flashy one, gigantic hailstones from the sky. The Amorites, they're retreating. For a moment, maybe they think we, if we can just get back safely to our cities, we can, we can, uh, we, we can maybe just uh, hole up there and resist the siege from the, the Israelites and regroup. But then the hailstones, the hailstones start falling from the sky as if the very clouds was against them. The clouds were against them. And, and certainly at this point, you cannot doubt that God is with them. This is the divine judgment. The forecast did not call for large hailstones. And because you can't exactly hide from the sky when you're out in an open battlefield, the text says that, in fact, this killed more Amorites than the Israelites did. God killed more Israelites with these hailstones than the Israelites did. Israel, of course, also would have known that this victory was God's, not their own. So the second clear indication that the battle is the Lord's, that Yahweh is the one who is getting the victory and the glory. God is the good guy. God is the hero. The last sign of God's hand against the Amorites to protect the Gibeonites and to guarantee Israel's success is one of the most famous and confounding miracles of the Old Testament, maybe even the Bible. It is uh, what is sometimes called Joshua's long day. Now, I've seen email, um, what's called email chains. What's that? When you just, you know, you pass it on email forwards. Oh, that NASA scientists have discovered, you know, the missing day of Joshua, the long day of Joshua. But as far as they know, that is uh, unfounded. That's like an urban legend. NASA has made no such claims. You know what would actually be more interesting is if this was a historical event, and I'm claiming that it is, Joshua's claiming that it is, um, wouldn't you have other civilizations maybe talking about like a long day? Or, because this is happening on the northern hemisphere, a long night, right? If you're in the southern hemisphere. Well, wouldn't you know it? There are civilizations that have claimed such things. I I take this from an article on creation.com. They're just going to mention a few. But this is a quote. Many cultures have legends that seem to be based on this event. For example, there is a Greek myth of Apollo's son, Phaethon, who disrupted the sun's course for a day. Greeks, of course, northern hemisphere. And since Joshua 10 is historical, cultures on the opposite side of the world should have legends of a long night. In fact, the New Zealand Maori people have a myth about how their hero Maui, like from, you know, is very popular right now, that Maui, how he slowed the sun before it rose. In other words, a long night. 
while the Mexican annals of Cuauhtitlan, the history of the empire of Culhuacan and Mexico, records a night that continued for an extended time. I, I just find that interesting, is that there are ancient civilizations that have also recorded some kind of peculiarity with the length of the day, or in the southern hemisphere, the length of a night, just like we have many ancient civilizations that seem to have an account or record of a global flood, uh, I think those are things that are, have been captured in the, in the memory. You know, not exactly like the way Bible tells it, but it passed on and embellished and so on. But many cultures all across the world have uh, accounts of the flood and apparently accounts of this long day. Now, that's, that doesn't need to make your faith, you know, you, you don't need to have that be something your faith hinges on either way. Because I know what actually happened is mysterious. God is God. Miracles by nature are at least a little bit unnatural. But if you're asking like, what what actually happened? (laughs) Okay, well, I lean towards the simplest explanation, which would be that God slowed and stopped the rotation of the earth. I just, I think that's the simplest way to me. I, I know some would say, but wouldn't everything fall off the earth if you just ground it to a halt. Well, I don't, I don't know. The, the guys at creation.com, and they're all like brilliant scientists, they actually know. I mean, maybe you've watched a lot of cartoons and think that's what happened if you suddenly brought the earth to a halt. You know, we'd all fly off, but that's not true, actually. Um, there'd be no problem with that. So, miracles are miracles. God can, can do what he wants, all right? But uh, I, I think what it sounds like, knowing now what the, you know, the nature of the universe and the solar system are, is that he uh, stopped the rotation of the earth and, of course, started it up again. Nothing says sovereign over the earth than stopping it and starting again. And we are to understand God's power in doing what is literally an astronomical feat. But ultimately... I don't know what happened. When we get to heaven, we can boot up the heavenly VCR and say, I want to see what happened on that day exactly, God. And I'm hoping he will indulge uh, those kinds of curiosities. Yeah, I want to replay. There's many replays I want of things that happen in the Bible. This is certainly up there. Ultimately, ultimately, the point of doing this was to demonstrate, was to ensure God's judgment against the Amorites. You know it in this little poem or song, these things stood still until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. The goal of this day being lengthened was to ensure that these kings uh, would be uh, conquered and that these armies would be destroyed. And actually, you get more detail about that in the rest of the chapter. We'll get to it um, next time, Lord willing. But um, the Amorites in particular, you know what they worship? The sky. <laughs> and so they would have been absolutely dismayed when these hailstones fell. And when that sun and moon, maybe they thought, as soon as that sun goes down, if we can just make it till the sun goes down, you know, we have a chance to escape because they can't slaughter us all if it's dark. And then just to realize, I don't think the sun's moved <laughs> in a few minutes here, in a few hours here. Utter dismay. No other conclusion than that God was with the Israelites and that, um, that he is sovereign, that they are the bad guys, <laughs> that they are the ones we're not on the side of God. Uh, there's a mention here of the book of Jashar, and um, there's a few references in the Bible to books outside of the Bible, if that makes sense. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's the, the Bible itself is what is true, and if it references another book, it is saying that those things that were written are, are true. 
Um, the book of Jashar, we don't have any copies of it um, in existence. Uh, it was likely a book of quotes, or maybe it was songs made from iconic quotes of the Bible, but we don't have any real uh, way to know that for sure. Again, maybe in heaven we can, or maybe some archaeologists will find this book of Jashar. That'd be fantastic. Um, but in any case, I don't have any more information about the book of Jashar, and neither does anyone, anyone else. Uh, but we know that this was spoken by uh, Joshua, that this is uh, the recorded words, and this is the word of God. So this is for certain uh, what was said. Joshua then, um, I'm sorry, the text then ends with the statement that this long day was unique in all the history of mankind because Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, meaning he responded to Joshua's almost unbelievable request of stopping the sun and the moon that this is significant that God would listen to that prayer that request, you could say. And we are intended to think that Joshua had an amazing faith. Wasn't perfect, as we've already seen, but he knew how to trust the Lord and fully commit to his purpose and desire. That's what God is commending here. The narrator, really, of this text, who is filled by the Holy Spirit, is commending Joshua, really, because Joshua's purpose and desire was fully in line with God's. That's what makes Joshua the good guy. That's what makes him notable because God is the, the hero of the story. And when you are in line with what he wants, then you too are sharing in that glorious uh, story and participating in his wonderful work. There's something remarkable. I was just thinking about this. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many moments like this I've really thought about and sat down, really thought about and had. But it is a remarkable thing, and I hope you've experienced this before, where you know that your will and your desires are aligned with God's. And, and it just fills your prayer with so much confidence, knowing that because you, you want what God wants, that you're in line with what he wills. You're totally submitted to him, but bold in him, that your prayer is just aligned with, with God's own heart. And that's, that's, that's something I, I realize I need to think about more. I mean, I, I, need to, I need to want that more. I'm just throwing up prayers to God. But here he's being commended for really being so in line that it's saying that Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, as if you could boss God around. You can't boss God around. But this is not a statement about, you know, Joshua's bossing God around. It's, it's really a statement just how in line Joshua was with the Lord, that, that it's as if God was saying, yeah, whatever you say, Joshua, I'll do that. Having said that, it's important to note that what Yahweh actually did and what we was honoring in his prayer for that long day was, was in fact his own plan. How do we know that this is the case? All that I just said, that he was in line, because it's for Yahweh fought for Israel. What is it that Joshua ultimately wanted? When he pled with the Lord, was he pleading with him for some personal advantage or gain? When he was totally aligned with Yahweh in that way, such that Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, was it because he was asking for a Lamborghini? Or was he asking for, uh, you know, the, the right girl to come along? Those are not bad prayers. Don't get me wrong. You can pray, 
pray for anything. You know, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. You can pray about anything, but let's just notice here, Joshua's prayer was not for his own glory. It was for the glory of God. His prayer was for Yahweh to do something uh, for and on the behalf of the Israelites. And in this case, it also happened to be for the benefit of the Gibeonites. Part of the reason this chapter is significant, and we'll see this in Joshua 11, verse 19 and 20. Joshua 11, 19 and 20, the narrator says, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, the Gibeonites. This is a tremendous statement because the Gibeonite peace treaty is what caused, precipitated all this whole battle and the siege and, and their route and the hailstones. It is that Israel had to defend, had to rescue, had to save the Gibeonites. And if there's anyone that I feel in this narrative most like, most akin to. It's not necessarily these self-righteous kings. Don't get me wrong. I can definitely be self-righteous. It's not uh, the, the, the brave Israelites who marched the 25 miles to save the Gibeonites. It's not Joshua who had so much faith that, <laughs> that Yahweh heeded the voice of a man. It's these Gibeonites who are pleading, help me, <laughs> help. <laughs> we need you to come save us. The more I've look, been looking at Joshua 9 and 10, the more I realize that the Gibeonites probably represent my situation more than anyone else's in this story. We don't deserve, I don't deserve to be spared God's judgment. We're on the to-be-destroyed list as the Jebusites were. Ephesians chapter 2 talk about us as being children of wrath. We utterly depend on the mercy of God to save us and rec- rescue us. And really, we shouldn't even expect him our enemy, to be our friend. But as just as Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites, just as the Gibeonites pled with the Israelites to make a covenant with them, so God has made a covenant with us, his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We are not a warring nation. We are individuals, um, but we are still no less sinners and deserving of judgment But Paul writes this in the New Testament, Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through Jesus Christ, We can make our plea. God, I don't deserve to be saved. You have no reason to save me, but I am desperate. The choice is to submit to your overwhelming power and might and wisdom and knowledge with humility and submission and pleading. God, I don't deserve it, but would you show mercy and grace to me because of what Jesus has done? Jesus, your son, perfect in every way, yet shed his blood so that I can have my sinful life exchanged for his perfect life. Not like the Gibeonites who tried to deceive the Israelites. You you can't deceive God. Although many do offer false promises to God in exchange for salvation. God, if you just get me out of this mess, I'll go to church. I'll pray 10 times a day. But 
We saw last week that the attitude of humility and submission that the Gibeonites had was they didn't, they didn't make promises to like do something. They made a promise to be slaves of Israel forever in exchange for being spared judgment. And in the light of the overwhelming might of the Israelites, it was just a frantic play. It's a desperate plea to make. But they understood. They were so desperate, they felt it was better to try and get away with a lie than be wiped out. Now, for us, if you're not a Christian today especially, you're an enemy of God. You're worthy of, of his judgment for every single thought and, and word and deed you need to be held into account for. There must be justice made. And God is infinite and holy. He sees every thought, every sin. He knows every plot you've ever developed in your mind, every envious eye that you've glanced at others with. And it hasn't honored him. You're his enemy. And just like the Gibeonites and the Jebusites and everyone else, deserving of judgment and wrath. But if you can be like the Gibeonites, to understand that imminence of destruction and judgment. You can also plead, not on the basis of your good works, not on the basis of any bribe you think you can offer God, but a humble admission, I have nothing to offer you except me, God, and I'm your enemy. So all I can plead is your grace and your mercy. Will you offer it? You can have salvation because you know he does offer mercy and grace to sinners. Because while we were enemies, Jesus Christ died for us. All that to say, I think we, as we look at Joshua, you know, 10, and then we'll see in 11, we're going to see a lot of death and destruction. It is to paint a vivid picture of our sin. But if we would be as humble and desperate as the Gibeonites, we can be protected by God and in just the same miraculous, overwhelming way as hailstones falling from the sky, as the day, the earth itself being stopped. That kind of power can be there for you as well. Now, if you're a Christian, I mean, there's so much here. Uh, I, uh, Yahweh, he is the star. He is the hero of the story, of this story. Is he the center, the hero of your story? Is he at the center of your decision? Is he the one you're trying to honor? Do you, find, do you define your success in God's purposes being made and laid out just like Joshua did? Then you can also be a part of God's redemptive story. You can be you know, the good guy, the hero as well. And if you haven't been that way in a while, you can come to him now even. Just, just even as we pray, come to him. Ask him for forgiveness Know that he will show his grace and that he does want you to be a part of what he is doing to accomplish his purpose. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the book of Joshua. And, and Lord, there are things that we also are always want to know more about and wish we could peel back some of the layers and how does uh, a sun, the sun stand still for a day. Um, but ultimately, it points to the same truth. You are in control. You are sovereign. You are Lord. And we want you to be the center of our lives just as you are the center of the story of the Bible and the center of the story of all creation. How could it be otherwise? You're God. So help us to submit our lives to you. Help us to be as desperate for 
your salvation as the Gibeonites. Help us to see the seriousness of our sin that makes that salvation so precious. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the rest of our evening as we eat and as we talk and share that the fellowship here would be honoring to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as usual, we'll have a time for dinner together. We have a lot of food, so please